0: the introduction for episode 107 of crow triple seven radio the podcast uh first things first here we have opened up a steemit account so head over to steemit to check us out and uh jason and rose will be adminning a new facebook account as we've mentioned in past episodes search returns are becoming very choked so we're doing whatever we can to get the word out and keep the train on the track here this episode we cover gaming it's a very interesting topic very few people ...are even aware of the level of data collection and programming that goes into modern gaming. We track it up through its beginnings, through the military-industrial complex at its onset... ...and we even cover some of the more dark side aspects. At the end of this uh, first hour, you'll hear about how an audio designer for one of these gaming places... uh, ...was given actual audio from a slaughterhouse where pigs were being killed... ...to use in a game as a soundtrack for demons... And you can only imagine what that might do to the psyche of a young kid playing these games, as mostly children do play these games. Anyhow, it is a very interesting episode. So, jump in. Uh, Let's jump in with Jason and check us out on Steemit. And if you dare, it's choking me to death. You can go over to Facebook. So, there it is, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is the podcast. We're doing episode 107, and I have Jason Lindgren with me. Welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So, I'm getting a ton of emails from people just about all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I keep getting emails that say Ebola and green are back in the news. So, I guess people have picked up on that little nonsense. But people had sent me uh, Russian cosmonauts, I guess, uh, in their little capsule going up with a stuffed animal, like a pair of fuzzy dice, um, you know, going up in a rocket. And I just had to laugh because. It's stated that a rocket basically travels at five miles per second to escape so-called Earth's gravity, and we know that a rifle bullet is only traveling at 3,400 feet per second, and we know that a mile is 5,280 feet. So basically, a rifle bullet's traveling just over half a mile per second, where a rocket is traveling five miles per second. So I got to ask, Jason, do you think we could shorten our trip from east coast to west coast just by riding a, a rifle bullet, maybe?
1: Well, it sure is a hell of a lot of Gs, but yeah, let's make it so.
0: (laughs) And they got their little fuzzy dice stuffed animal, you know, just swinging back and forth as they go five miles per second. But anyhow, do you have anything to add for the intro? We've got a lot to get through. I think we have about 10 subscriber questions left over, which we will push to the second hour, the end of the second hour, and get through what we can there. Uh, Do you have anything? Yeah,
1: let's go through an article on this whole European Union nonsense going on in regards to the Oh, Internet. yeah. yep. The European Union is preparing to implement sweeping privacy rules next month, but these new protections of individuals' information may set a new standard around the world, including in the United States. Beginning May 25th, under the new General Data Protection Regulation, companies that collect or mine personal data must ask users for consent. No longer will firms be able to bury disclosures about pervasive tracking in hard-to-read legal disclaimers.
0: So here is where the big takeover starts. Sounds like a good thing, right? They're all out to protect our data, but let's break it down to its basics. The European Union is an unelected body. And so why the hell is an unelected body in Europe having any say in in the rules for the internet of the United States? Right now, my media server for this podcast was just taken over by European Union guidelines. I kid you not. Data collection and all this other nonsense going on. PayPal and credit card gateways um, that we use for subscription are now paying an extra percent, which is being attributed to the European Union. So, I mean, what are we to make of this, Jason? This is how they always roll it out, right? The European Union's taken over the United States and every other country that wants to use the Internet. They will now implement the rules based on the false idea of terrorism. And uh, we're all supposed to just roll over. But by the way, they're doing it to protect our data. This is where it starts, man. Well, I've been saying this for
1: quite a few years now. They don't need to do a militaristic world order. That's way too obvious. It's easy just to legislate us to death.
0: Well, this is beyond the pale. The European Union is basically an unelected governing body. You know, Britain had everything to do with starting it and then backed out. I guess the Queen doesn't want to be ruled over by an unelected governing body. Who knows what the reason for all that is? My point is, is at what point did the United States of America decide that an unelected body in Europe was going to dictate the rules and regulations that you know, arbitrate how we use the internet. And as I mentioned, my media server, PayPal, all of it now under EU guidelines. Uh, It's beyond the pale, man.
1: I think the whole European rule thing started around 1776. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I guess you could make that point. But anyhow, we've got a hell of a lot to get through. We're going to be covering video games in episode 107 here. And one one interesting thing, as I was going through the timeline that Jason had put together, for the most part, maybe not in the very beginning, we were alive during this timeline. So we actually know um, that most of the timeline we're going to lay down here is resembles accurate, you know, according to when it happened. While we may not know the actual date of what year it currently is, we do in fact know that most of what we're going to cover here happened in our lifetimes, uh, barring the first computer bit that we're going to get through here, which goes back to about World War II. Anyhow, Jason, straight over to you. We better start pumping through. So, what is a video game?
1: It's a game played by electronically manipulating images produced by a computer program on a television screen or other display screen.
0: Okay, so... Let's put some context around this really early in the game. We're going to get into a lot of concepts here. And basically, for my part, what this is aimed at is we have now entered a world where when you go out, you see so many people with their faces just stuck in electronic device. The younger generation... They're not going outside and playing like we did when I was a kid. They're stuck around video games. Video games, as we will get in here, trumped the value of Hollywood movies many, many years ago by many, many times. We have pointed out the programming nature of television and movies and gaming is this on steroids because it creates that idea of entertainment into an interactive mode where not only are you being programmed, you're now doing actions according to the game. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. So let's talk about today, before we take a walk
1: back through history. The video game industry is the economic sector involved in the development, marketing, and monetization of video games. It encompasses dozens of job disciplines, and its component parts employ thousands of people all over the world. The gaming industry as a whole generated over $100 billion in 2017. The 2017 year-in-review report by Superdata shows that mobile games remain the biggest sector, generating $59.2 billion, followed by PC games at $33 billion and consoles at $8.3 billion. This trend is, of course, predicted to continue ever upward, with constant technological advances making games always more engaging, immersive, and addictive as the years go
0: by. So here it is, man. This is where we are now. There is a natural world around us, which in fact is illusory in its nature, which human beings need to get to the bottom of to grow up a little bit. And yet here is another layer of illusion, which pulls you from the natural world. Um, They're even making fun of us in so many television commercials these days where they actually offer you insurance for your pizza. That's right. That's how precious your pizza is now. And the example they give in the episode is that a guy has got his face so far into his smartphone that he forgets that he leaves his pizza on top of his car. They're making fun of what these devices are doing. Uh, They're creating a completely illusional kind of artificial reality, and so many of us have been pulled into it.
1: So let's go back in time. The first electronic digital computers, Colossus and ENIAC, were built during World War II to aid the Allied war effort against the Axis powers. Shortly after the war, the promulgation of the first stored program architectures at the University of Pennsylvania, Cambridge University, the University of Manchester, and Princeton University allowed computers to be easily reprogrammed to undertake a variety of tasks, which facilitated commercializing computers in the early 1950s by companies like Remington Rand, Ferranti, and IBM. This in turn promoted the adoption of computers by universities, government organizations, and large corporations as the decade progressed.
0: It was in this environment that the first video games were born. And people should not forget, it's pointed out here how the EDU or the educational, the universities, got some of the earliest internet that was rolling out to the public beyond the military. Um, What's in a word? Look at the first computer cited here, the first digital electronic computers, one named Colossus, Colossus, the other ENIAC. Well, ENIAC is E-N-I-A-C, which is basically cane backwards. Words have meaning you can always see the game being played if you take the time to scrutinize what you're being presented with here. And truly, they rolled out into these universities. And this is a very telling thing on the face of it. Um, These universities named here are inside baseball. They have to be for what's about to come um and on top of it well I'll save this for a bit later but I was going to point out that when you look at the naming of any of these devices or their number as we pointed out with the Xbox 360 going from 360 to 1 hitting the 9 completion number and rolling around to a new cycle there is information in all these things that tell you something about where you are in a given cycle go ahead Jason
1: 1952 OXO or knots and crosses or as it's most commonly known tic tac toe is a video game The first that, as it is commonly said, developed by A.S. Douglas in 1952, which simulates a game of tic-tac-toe. It was one of the first games developed in the early history of video games. Douglas programmed the game as part of a thesis on human-computer interaction at the University of Cambridge. It was written on the Electronic Delay Storage Automatic Calculator. EDSAC was one of the first stored program computers with memory that could be read from or written to and had three small cathode ray tube screens to display the state of the memory. Douglas repurposed one screen to demonstrate portraying other information to the user, such as the state of a knot and crosses games. After the game served its purpose, it was discarded on the original hardware, but later successfully reconstructed. Tic-tac-toe, along with A drafts game by Christopher Strachey, completed around the same time, is one of the earliest known games to display visuals on an electronic screen. Under some definitions, it thus may qualify as the first video game, though other definitions exclude it due to its lack of moving or real-time updating graphics. Each game was played by one user against an artificially intelligent opponent, which could play a perfect game. The player entered their input using a rotary telephone controller, selecting which of the nine squares on the board they wished to move next. Their move would appear on the screen, and then the computer's move would follow. The game display only updated when the game state changed. OXO was not available to the general public and could only be played in the University of Cambridge's Mathematical Laboratory by special permission as the EdSec could not be moved, and both the computer and the game were only intended for academic research purposes.
0: So this is a big, big deal. Most people would read this and think, so what? They made tic-tac-toe, but the real thing that's going on here is the difference between television and a video game, basically. A television, you put it on, it's static. You watch what goes on. With now the first tic-tac-toe game brought to you on a computer, uh, you have interaction. So now the actions of a human being are being input to the machine to get a result. And this will play prominently as we move forward in the development. But again, uh, all these little namings have meaning, don't they? Uh, This is the first one in 1952 called tic-tac-toe, but the official name was OXO, which is, of course, triple six. Go ahead ma'am nineteen fifty eight tennis for two
1: a sports video game developed in nineteen fifty eight which simulates a game of tennis and was one of the first games developed in the early history of video games American physicist. William Higginbotham designed the game for display at the Brookhaven National Laboratory's annual public exhibition after learning that the government research institution's Donner Model 30 analog computer could simulate trajectories with wind resistance. He designed the game, displayed on an oscilloscope, and played with two custom aluminum controllers in a few hours, after which he and technician Robert V. Dvorak built it over three weeks. The game's visuals show a representation of a tennis court viewed from the side, and players adjust the angle of their shots with a knob on their controller and try to hit the ball over the net by pressing a button. The game was very popular during the three-day exhibition, with players lining up to see the game, especially high school students. It was shown again the following year with a larger oscilloscope screen and a more complicated design that could simulate different gravity levels. It was then dismantled and largely forgotten until the late 1970s when Higginbotham testified in court about the game during lawsuits between Magnavox and Ralph H. Baer over video game patents. Since then, it has been celebrated as one of the earliest video games, and Brookhaven has made recreations of the original device. Under some definitions, Tennis 4-2 is considered the first video game, as while it did not include any technological innovations over prior games, it was the first computer game to be created purely as an entertainment product, rather than for academic research or commercial technology promotion.
0: So this, again, is very telling. You know, we're talking about 1958 here when they basically invented what people will remember as Pong. I think it was the 1970s, and I lived in a family where there wasn't even a color TV in the house until the late 80s. Not even kidding, uh, but there was a Pong uh, unit for our black and white TV uh, sometime in the 70s. People of my generation will remember Pong, but it's a little telling to consider that this game was designed and loved in 1958, yet it never really rolled out to be sold and part of the mainstream narrative until the 1970s and if i had to venture a guess and it is a guess i think the first time we see this in any way that people are going to remember it is in a game called Pong.
1: next we have 1962 space war It's a combat video game developed in 1962 by Steve Russell in collaboration with Martin Graetz and Wayne Wittanen and programmed by Russell with assistance from others including Bob Sanders and Steve Piner. It was written for the newly installed DEC PDP-1 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. After its initial creation, Space War was expanded further by other students and employees of universities in the area, including Dan Edwards and Peter Sampson. It was also spread to many of the few dozen, primarily academic, installations of the PDP-1 computer, making Space War the first known video game to be played at multiple computer installations. The game features two spaceships, The Needle and The Wedge, engaged in a dogfight while maneuvering in the gravity well of a star. Both ships are controlled by human players. Each ship has limited fuel for maneuvering and a limited number of torpedoes, and the ships follow Newtonian physics remaining in motion even when the player is not accelerating. Flying near the star to provide a gravity assist was a common tactic. Ships are destroyed when hit by a torpedo or colliding with the star. At any time, the player can engage a hyperspace feature to move to a new random location on the screen, though each use has an increasing chance of destroying the ship instead. The game was initially controlled with switches on the PDP-1, though Alan Kotok and Bob Sanders built an early gamepad to reduce the difficulty and awkwardness of controlling the game. Space War is one of the most important and influential games in the early history of video games. It was extremely popular in the small programming community in the 1960s, and was widely ported to other computer systems at the time. It has also been recreated in more modern programming languages for PDP-1 emulators. It directly inspired many other electronic games, such as the first commercial arcade games, Galaxy Game and Computer Space from 1971, and later games such as Asteroids from 1979. In 2007... Space War was named to a list of the 10 most important video games of all time, which formed the start of the game canon at the Library of Congress.
0: Wow, so much in this bullet point, all the way back to 1962. This is maybe, I guess, what's being recognized as the first real kind of video game that lends itself to what's to follow. But what do we see here? We see the the introduction of violence, and we see the introduction of what it's like to be in space. These things are programming us all. Um, Video games add a level of violence into our world, particularly for the young generation that would not exist otherwise because these young people are not going to sit around and listen to the nonsense on Fox News or CNN or the other fear porn that's spouted on local news. Children or young people would be doing something else. Yet, involved in these games, which have their root back here to 1962, the first two things that get introduced is the idea of what it's like to be in space and violence. So there it is, man. Here comes. The you know the push for where we are now. By the 1960s, millions of Americans had invested
1: in televisions for their homes, and it soon became clear that this technology could be used for more than just passively watching television shows. In 1966, while working for defense contractor Saunders Associates Incorporated, an engineer named Ralph Baer began to experiment on how to play games on a television set. Between 1967 and 1969, he and colleagues Bill Harrison and Bill Rush created several video game test units. The result was a device nicknamed the Brown Box, a prototype for the first multiplayer, multi program video game systems. Saunders licensed the system to the company Magnavox. In 1972, Magnavox released the design as the Magnavox Odyssey, which would pave the way for all the video game systems
0: that would follow. And just like the internet, where does it start? It starts with defense contractors. Uh, Very few people are actually aware of the history of the internet, things like ARPANET and how they were well-known quantities well before the public ever got any inkling of them. Then they were rolled out into the universities, as we showed the early video game ideas were. And then eventually they made their way out to the general public through things like AOL. But gaming is no different here. Um, We're seeing the beginnings of it here. And who are they? They are defense contractors.
1: Jumping back a little bit to 1970, the introduction of medium-scale integration transistor-transistor logic circuits combining multiple transistors on a single microchip had resulted in a significant reduction in the cost of computing, which helped usher in a new wave of mini-computers costing under $10,000. While this was still too costly for home use yet, these advances lowered the cost of computing enough that it could be seriously considered for the coin-operated games industry, which at the time was experiencing its own technological renaissance as large electromechanical target shooting and driving games like Sega Enterprises Periscope from 1967 and Chicago Coins Speedway from 1969, pioneered the adoption of elaborate visual displays and electronic sound effects in the amusement arcade. As a result of these newer advances, when a recent engineering graduate from Utah with experience running coin-operated equipment named Nolan Bushnell first saw Space War at sale in late 1969 or early 1970, he resolved to build a coin-operated version for public use and his profit. Enlisting the aid of an older and more experienced engineer named Ted Dabney, Bushnell built a variant of Spacewar called Computer Space, in which a single-player-controlled spaceship dueled against two hardware-controlled flying saucers. Released in late November or early December 1971 through Nutting Associates, the game failed to have much impact in the coin-operated marketplace. However, there is more to come from these folks.
0: Right. So, in in my generation, when the arcades open and the coin operated cost you a quarter to play, uh, it was a big, big deal, and it made a lot of money for a small period of time, and that's what we're about to get into here. And and also, I would ask Jason, why is it always the names we recognize, like Bushnell? Why, you know, why isn't it always just some guy like John Smith? Hard to say,
1: you know. <laughs> hey, right. In 1972, Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney decided to strike out on their own and incorporated their pre-existing partnership as, definitely something you've heard of, folks, Atari. After seeing a demonstration of the Magnafox Odyssey ahead of its release, Bushnell charged new hire Alan Alcorn to create a version of that system's table tennis game as a practice project to familiarize himself with video game design. Alcorn's version ended up being so fun that Atari decided to release it as Pong, available in limited quantities in late 1972. Pong began reaching the market in quantity in March 1973, after which it ignited a new craze for ball and paddle video games in the coin-operated amusement industry. The success of Pong did not result in the displacement of traditional arcade amusements like pinball, but did lay the foundation for a successful video arcade game industry. Roughly 70,000 video games, mostly ball and paddle variants, were sold in 1973 by a combination of recent startups like Atari, Ramtech, and Allied Leisure and established Chicago firms like Williams, Chicago Coin, and the Midway subsidiary of Bally Manufacturing.
0: So this is all accurate. I was there. I remembered it. I referenced Pong earlier. We're looking at 1972 here. But, you know, one of the real big differences here is where you could take something like Star Wars from 1977 and show how it really affected American culture. Um, Here back in 1972, the same thing happened, except these things were coming into our house. And the big deal was is that a television was just for looking at up until this point, for the first time, you could plug this little thing into your TV and interact with it. And it caught on like wildfire, Jason.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a little before my time, but I definitely remember how these things caught on throughout the 70s.
0: Right, and there's no doubt, uh, as described here, is exactly what I remember seeing. Um, and when, as it goes a little further here, and we get into the video arcades, even the older games, um, things like pinball, they just got better. They never really went away. Uh, and you'll be surprised, too. You know, the arcade gaming window was really quite small when you look back on it now, but it had a massive impact on our culture.
1: Home game systems began to be seen in the 1970s, a lot of which had to do with variations on Pong, but nothing like what will be coming in the last years of the decade. Interest in video games and accompanying sales fluctuated up and down throughout the second half of the 1970s, with pinball games taking over some of the spotlight in commercial settings until the release of a little game you may have heard of called Space
0: Invaders by Midway in 1978. Right? There's no one of my generation that's not familiar with these things. And as a matter of fact, even in the common culture of today, where things like, let's take Marvel movies, that's the biggest thing going right now, owned by Disney Studios, right? Um, They still make references within their movies. Uh, Iron Man looks over and says, look, that guy's playing Galaga, right? These references are still being made to demonstrate the massive impact uh, that gaming has had on our culture. While we have the golden age of video
1: games in arcades starting in the late 1970s with hits like Breakout, the aforementioned Space Invaders, Asteroids, Galaxian, and later in the early 1980s, Defender, Missile Command, Pac-Man, Galaga, Donkey Kong, q and Ms. Pac-Man, and others as well, of course, we have the cartridge-style home console era beginning, a phenomenon that lasts until the present day. Early big players in this were the Fairchild Channel F in 1976, Magnavox Odyssey 2 in 1978-79, Intellivision in 1979, and ColecoVision in 1982. But let's not forget the most famous, and definitely part of my past, the Atari 2600. This last lovely bit of my childhood was released on... You ready for it, Crow?
0: (laughs) Go ahead, let's count the
1: ways. September 11th, 1977.
0: 1977, also the Star Wars year, so many other things. I think Jaws might have been a year before that or something. Um, these were serious times in American culture, and I doubt if there's a person listening to this that did not recognize every single game title, even if they were not old enough to be alive in the early and mid-70s when these came to be. This is the big shift. Um, we have had episodes where we show that it's really the 1980s is really a dividing line from where we used to be to where we are, and what you're looking up is the Q. Up of technology uh, before we roll into the 80s, but I mean, I don't think there's any any young person living in this era that was not whole hog into all this stuff.
1: Another popular arcade game by Atari was Battlezone. Battlezone is a first-person shooter tank combat arcade game from Atari Incorporated, released in November of 1980. The player controls a tank, which is attacked by other tanks and missiles. The game uses wireframe vector graphics on a black and white with green and red sectioned color overlay vector monitor. It was designed primarily by Ed Rotberg, who designed many games for Atari and later Atari games and Senti.
0: So here all the way back in 1980, we're looking at some of the first tank games. Um, I remember them. I remember the predecessor to Battlezone, actually, which was just basically line vector drawings. But even up into the modern era, you will now see ads on television saying, hey, we've got this great tank game. It's for free. Go ahead and just download it for free. Why are they doing that? Think carefully. What have we said so often? If you're not paying for the product, who is the product? Well, you are the product. So all the way from 1980, when Battlezone's making it big and they're introducing violence in a new way into our world, um, this thread is trackable all the way to the current era.
1: The first openly admitted use of a video game with the military, and the military teaming up with a video game company, is with a variation on Battlezone. The military version is called the Bradley Trainer, also known as Army Battle Zone or Military Battle Zone. It was also designed for use by the United States Army as targeting training for gunners on the Bradley Fighting Vehicle. It was commissioned by a consultant group of retired generals. Approaching Atari in December of 1980, some developers within Atari refused to work on the project because of its association with the Army, most notably original Battle Zone programmer Ed Rotberg. Rotberg only joined after he was promised by management that he would never be asked to do anything with the military in the future. According to Rotberg, it took him three months of constant work to develop the prototype version of the Bradley trainer. Only two were produced. One was delivered to the Army and is presumably lost, and the other is in the private collection of Scott Evans, who found it by a dumpster in the rear parking lot at Midway Games. The gunner yoke was based on the Bradley Fighting Vehicle Control and was later reused in the popular Star Wars game. The Bradley trainer differs dramatically from the original Battlezone as it features helicopters, missiles, and machine guns. Furthermore, the actual tank does not move. The guns simply rotate.
0: So here we have it. One of the early programmers, Mr. Rotberg, uh, he didn't want nothing to do with it and he'd already designed some tank games. Uh, He could see the violence in it. He could see the open acquisition and ideas from the military and the military getting involved. Uh, You know, I would have to imagine if I was this man, what would I have been thinking? I would have probably been thinking if it was me, um, there's a lot of children out here. They don't need to be exposed to this military violent nonsense. That's what I would be thinking. And so as the story goes, this is what happened back in the day but yet they still sucked Mr. Rotberg in, didn't they?
1: Let's also not forget that the Vietnam conflict was not that far in the past by uh, the year 1980.
0: Right. Um, you know, there were a lot of Vietnam vets at this point. Uh, it just, you know, there, there's never going to be a time when we can't separate the programming uh, from an actual real world where there's nature and all these other things that we could pay attention to and these types of things. As we get into this, video games are going to be hugely responsible for the amount of violence that enter the minds of people in this world. It's all there is. You know, I have nephews and they have a whole lexicon kill them, shoot them, frag them. Um, you know, they're all being Ranked. All the data is being collected, and their worldwide ranking is look, you know, anyone can go online and look it up. I've always wondered if the military keeps an eye on who the best in the world are because those would be the best drone pilots or who knows, remote tank pilots. You never know what's going on. But, you know, what was that? Uh, there was a movie in the mid 80s where they put a video game into a. Uh, trailer park and some guy got the top score and of course he was hired to be the top gun space pilot right Um, these types of ideas but there's no getting away from the introduction of violence that would not otherwise exist into the young minds of people who get tied up in this stuff
1: the video game crash of 1983 known as the Atari shock in Japan was a large-scale recession in the video game industry that occurred from 1983 to 1985 primarily in North America because of market saturation Revenues peaked at around three point two billion dollars in nineteen eighty three then fell to around a hundred million dollars by nineteen eighty five which was a drop of almost ninety seven percent three point two billion dollars in nineteen eighty three dollars is that's quite a lot of money staggering. The crash was a serious event that brought an abrupt end to what is retrospectively considered the second generation of console video gaming in North America. The crash shook the then-booming industry and led to the bankruptcy of several companies producing home computers and video game consoles in the region. It lasted for about two years. Analysts at the time expressed doubts about the long-term viability of video game consoles and software. Aha, how wrong they were. The North American video game console industry recovered a few years later, mostly due to the widespread success of the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, which was soft-launched in New York City in late 1985 and had become popular in North America by 1987.
0: And which system was launched on uh, November 11th there, Jason? Do you remember? I'm sorry, September 11th. My bad.
1: Oh, the original one launched on September 11th was the Atari 2600 in 1977.
0: Right. So we can always count the ways. When I looked through this bullet point, um, I started to ask the question, are we just simply looking at a takeover of power here? How could anyone have looked at what's gone on and think that video games were never going to matter? And the amount of money, Jason even stopped in the middle of this to point out the amount of money being made was staggering. To me, this bullet point looks like it's outlining a, a corporate takeover or a consolidation of power to get some people to go belly up so that uh you know the 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 approved players at the corporate level could come in and take over the gaming industry if i had to venture a guess and it is a guess that's that's what it appears is going on here
1: so after the atari 2600 and the huge crash we have the next big thing in 1983 nintendo a japanese company that had been around since 1889 and had already found some success in other video games, launched the family computer, colloquialized as Famicom, home video game console in Japan, alongside ports of its most popular arcade games. In 1985, a cosmetically reworked version of the system known outside Japan as the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, launched in North America. The practice of bundling the system, along with select games, helped to make Super Mario Brothers one of the best-selling video games in history.
0: Man, I'll tell you what. Japan was a big damn deal in electronics in the '80s. Who can forget the Walkman? I mean, the Walkman is one of the biggest turning points in you know consumer used electronics of all time. It could even be you know thought of as the forerunner to the iPod in certain ways. Uh, for the first time, you could take your music with you, and here again in '83, we have N- Nintendo jumping into the American market again and really shaking things up. Well, the Walkman changed everything.
1: Absolutely, everything. it did.
0: As did this, I did, you know, the NES. I don't think we can downplay the NES anymore. Um, I think any person that's big into gaming, this is one of the, you know, foundational systems they're going to remember.
1: Absolutely. I love the thing. Had a good couple of games for it and played the snot out of it as a child.
0: One thing we should point out so you know here's japan coming on strong um they they put out some things that are going to literally change world culture nes being one the walkman being one but look where it goes as we head down this timeline look who the big players become it's almost like a corporation knows where it wants to go and it does whatever it needs to get there
1: home computers were also able to be used for video games atari had a hand they played in in this industry as well but there were quite a few others The Apple II computer, released in 1977, could do some games. Commodore International had several releases as well, with its most popular being the Commodore 64 in 1982. Multiple other companies also got into the home computer and gaming situation, another huge notable being the IBM PC, all helping to make home computing and video games a common household thing from that point on.
0: You know, you've almost got to wonder um, what actual real role gaming played in finally getting computers. You know, when computers first came out, there were very few things people could do with them. I think one of the early things that really made them handy in a way was spreadsheets. Um, But until you get by that kind of day-to-day office idea, I can type a letter. There were actually two things that the earliest computers were good at. For the first time, you didn't need whiteout. You could write something, if you made a mistake, correct it, erase it, rewrite it any number of times before it was printed. That was the first really useful thing computers did. The second thing was spreadsheets, and that's pulling from my memory. So by the time we get up to these uh, very early computers doing gaming, this is really the launch point, where all of a sudden computers can do something more than be handy to write a letter or make a spreadsheet.
1: The 1980s sees many game releases from the Monster Dominator Nintendo as well as Sega coming into full bloom with its 1989 release of the Sega Genesis, the first mainstream 16-bit system. Handheld gaming sees a strong contender with Nintendo's 1989 release of the Game Boy. And although the Golden Age is said to be over, arcade games are still a reasonably profitable hit as well.
0: I think it could probably be argued in some ways the Game Boy was a little bit like the Walkman, right? Um, uh, There was a period of time there when almost every child you saw had a Game Boy. I remember that. Yeah, you remember this era. So again, you know, you're looking at at how widespread and how far-reaching and changing of culture these types of of inventions and devices are. Early online gaming. Dial-up bulletin board systems were
1: popular in the 1980s and sometimes used for online game playing. The earliest such systems were in the late 1970s and early 1980s and had a crude, plain-text interface. Later systems made use of terminal control codes, the so-called ANSI art, which included the use of IBM PC-specific characters, not part of an American National Standards Institute, or ANSI standard, to get a pseudo-graphical interface. Some BBSs, which is bulletin board systems offered access to various games which were playable through such an interface ranging from text adventures to gambling games like blackjack generally played for points as opposed to money on some multi-user bbs's where more than one person could be online at once there were games allowing users to interact with one another
0: you know it's astounding when you when I, I can remember this time well, Jason, and I remember how crappy the graphics were and how slow everything was and the dial-up connection. You know we should we should actually put that noise into this, um, the the old noise the dial-up connection <laughs> used to make when you were getting online. Um, but look how far we've come. Right now we're on the doorstep of virtual reality, which will suck people in in a way that has never before been seen. Um, they'll be able to do anything, be anything, just about in a virtual world where even the sky is more beautiful than the. Sky guy you will go out and look at for most people because it will be enhanced to such a degree but this is how far we've come just since the 1980s. can you imagine another 50 years from now will we be a wholly computerized kind of cyberbot you know world <laughs> or will we have said wait a minute man not so quick it's a hard thing to know Jason.
1: Moving on full-time from 8-bit consoles to 16-bit, video games continued to get better and better throughout the 1990s. PC games also start to really catch on with 3D graphics starting to become a viable reality as the machines became ever more powerful. This trend continues all the way up until today, with the concept of convincing virtual reality moving ever closer to our daily lives. Sony takes over a huge chunk of the marketplace with its first PlayStation, which is now on its fourth generation, as well as the Microsoft Xbox units, both of which are 32-bit systems. Nintendo becomes a monster once again with the 1996 release of the Nintendo 64, which is a 64-bit system. After this, bits are no longer a big deal to use with major companies' descriptions of their game
0: systems. So in my estimation, when we look at things like the numbering of game consoles and even into telephones and how they're numbered, when we see the completion number of nine hit or skipped in some cases, going straight from eight to one, uh, there are some things that I've seen that do that. What you're looking at is occurring right around the, the beginning of the 2000s. And in my view, when they start rolling the 360 to the one and these other types of the types of ideas hidden in the naming and the numbering of these platforms is when they hit that one, you're looking looking at the beginning of a new cycle when they really have some new data collection possibilities up and running with the Kinect and the Xbox system and many other ways, not to just Throw aside the connect, but even the interaction that you were doing with your with your gaming system, all that data is being collected and data mined. So, in my view, when we get to the two thousands, this is the real dividing line. In the same way the nineteen eighties is the change point for the way culture used to be in this country to the way it is now, the two thousands is the technical change point. You agree with that, Jason? Yes, because into the 2000s, we have
1: a new contender for gaming domination, Microsoft's Xbox. This system will see great success for Microsoft and would be followed up with the more powerful Xbox 360 in 2005 then the Xbox One in 2013. The Xbox 360 would also introduce the user to the Kinect system. Kinect, which was codenamed project natal during its development is a line of motion sensing input devices that was produced by microsoft for the xbox 360 and xbox one video game consoles and microsoft windows pcs as well based around a webcam style add-on peripheral it enables users to control and interact with their console computer without the need for a game controller through a natural user interface using gestures and spoken commands What does this mean? It's watching you.
0: All the time. And you know, who can forget? uh, Most of us listening to this podcast were alive in this time, I would estimate, in 2013. And uh, this was codenamed Project Natal. And the word natal has a meaning, if I remember correctly. It has to do with the place or time or or ideas around one's birth. And so they're really saying something in this project. But early on, the big controversy was the Kinect was connected to the Xbox. She couldn't separate the two and there was a big fight over that. But basically what it comes down to is the Kinect is watching all the time, isn't it? And all that data is being collected. It's a bit like, uh, what are these stupid devices called now? Alexa and these other things that people have been fooled into putting into their homes, where everything they do is monitored by these devices. The way they talk, the way they move, the things they turn on, the things they. They turn off the car, they have all of it, a known quantity and therefore collectible by data mining. Um, This is really where it starts with Xbox and the Kinect in my view.
1: I am quite appalled about the whole Alexa and all the other variations of it. People know that these things are listening to them and they just don't care. So can we honestly say here that the conditioning over the decades has worked?
0: I'm going to go with, yeah. It's laziness, isn't it? To the extreme. That stupid Alexa doesn't do anything you couldn't do on your own. It's just easier to say, hey, Alexa, collect all my data and do this for me. Uh, It's beyond the pale. All the people who have come to these types of devices, I'm not even sure what they're called, where they just sit in your home on all the time tracking your voice, tracking your children's voice, your movements, everything you used. It is the ultimate infringement on the privacy of a human being in a household, and yet so many just so readily. They're even putting it into shows like AFV, um, another Disney hint, hint, hint show, where they show people interacting with their Alexa or doing this, or a kid mistaking another device for Alexa, talking to a, you know, a pepper mill, trying to get it to do what Alexa will do. Um, I'll say this for the record. If you're a person who has put an Alexa in your home, shame on you shame on you. Um, These are the types of shifts forward in technology that are going to have a payback in the future big time.
1: Let's take a poll in the forum and see how many folks are actually using those. I would like to think that our listeners are a little more aware than that.
0: I would be surprised if Any more than one or two people of all the subscribers that follow us would engage in such a thing. Uh, We have taken so much time to show the dangers of data collection, to show how often you, in fact, are the product. You think you're using the product, you think the product is somewhere else, and yet when someone comes along and finally tells you, look, man, this is free. When When a thing is free, you are the product, and what is it that you are giving them? You are giving them data, and data is king. You know, maybe back in the 70s, it could be argued that cash is king. Cash is no longer king. They make it with a computer keyboard. They tap it a few times, and cash is made. Um, that's how cash is made in the modern era. What is king now is data. Data is more valuable than any other thing in this world to the powers that be.
1: Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony all have a good chunk of the gaming market leading up to today. PC gaming has another big chunk, but mobile gaming that also does quite well. With popularity of these going as far back as 1997, with the game Snake being played on Nokia cell phones. How many of you out there remember those? By the way, those Nokia cell phones that everybody had. It was one of the earliest digital ones. After we got rid of those gray analog Motorola phones, which was like the first thing I ever got into with cell phones and. There was, like, a black, pretty small Nokia phone that everybody had, and everybody played Snake on it. I didn't really, I didn't, I thought it was boring, but... (laughs)
0: Yeah, man, that little black cube we all have in our pockets that we call cell phones, um, it's a heck of a thing. I, I invite everyone listening to this. When you go out into the world today, just at some point, stop and look at all the human beings around you and look how many of them are stuck with their face jammed in their phone and how many are actually interfacing and paying attention to the real world around them. And at times it becomes astonishing. Whenever I go to a restaurant, I am often blown away by the complete detachment from reality, which is brought to us by the cell phone. And even when I look at the stats of this podcast for the membership over at crow777.com, quite often 60% of all users are coming to me on handhelds. And I'm not trying to deride that, but I am saying um, this is a hell of a shift for those that are old enough to remember the 80s Um, that was a different time. All you did was interface with reality. There was no such thing as you know all this technology in your pocket and all this make-believe stuff that you can be interested in. And it is all artificial. It is all make-believe. And while it is handy to have a search engine, you can look up whatever you want, even that is becoming problematic because the searches that we get now are wholly controlled. So the further we go down this road, I think there's going to come a point when we have to address the kind of duck. Uh, Dune idea, you know, by what was the name, Frank Herbert, I think, the author of the book Dune. Um, In the very earliest novel, they speak about a war that happened before the Dune book is, you know, before the time in the book is occurring, and they call it the Butlerian Jihad. And the Butlerian Jihad was apparently fought wholly over computers, what computers had done to the world. And this was written back in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, a long, long time before technology came to bear, which tells us all something, but the outcome of that fictional war war fought in Frank Herbert's Dune was that When the war was over, anyone who owned a computer could be put to death. And, of course, the leaders and the rulers always hid a computer to have it around. But for the most of society, computers were a no-no, and there was a reason for that whole fictional line to be written. And this is what we're looking at now, and it makes me wonder. Will we come to a point where we have a Butlerian jihad of our own when when the control gets so one-sided, when every aspect of our lives is known and collected and used against us? I'm just saying, man. Food for thought.
1: Definitely food for thought. Online gaming. During the 1990s, online games started to move from a wide variety of LAN protocols, such as IPX, and onto the internet using the TCP IP protocol. Doom popularized the concept of a deathmatch, where multiple players battle each other head-to-head as a new form of online game. Since Doom, many first-person shooter games contain online components to allow deathmatch or arena-style play. And by popularity, first-person shooter games are becoming more and more widespread around the world. The kind of games that are played at the more popular competitions are Counter-Strike, Halo, Call of Duty Advanced Warfare, Quake Live, and Unreal Tournament. Competitions have a range of winnings from money to hardware. Expansion of Hero Shooters, a subgenre of shooter games, happened in 2016 when several developers released or announced their Hero Shooter multiplayer online games, such as Battleborn, Overwatch, and Paladins. Real-time strategy games, multiplayer online battle arena games, and massively multiplayer online games, such as World of Warcraft, also make use of the internet to connect people all over the world.
0: So, Jason, I think we've come to another dividing line, and I'm kind of paying attention. The young people that I know uh, who were big into Xbox or PlayStation uh, with certain games like Halo or Destiny or these other just massively popular games that are all to do with violence, um, they seem to be leaving their consoles behind and venturing back online, so it'll be interesting to see where this goes, but here in the 1990s is where the injection of violence into the young minds happens. Um, Look what we're talking about. First-person shooters, death match arena, um, all these things that bring violence into the minds of a young person. And, you know, Jason, I don't know if we're going to cover it. Are we going to cover at some point um, the audio thing with the pigs at all? Do you want to address that before we wrap up the first hour?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting point made by the researcher Clint Richardson, who I'm very fond of. He's done the most amazing work I've ever seen on the straw man identity and the Kaffer reports and all that. Go check him out if you're not familiar with his work. But he used to work in the video game industry, and I'm just going to paraphrase what he's spoken about because I don't remember his exact details. But if I recall correctly, he was doing audio design and working on one of the games that had demonic creatures or something like that, and they were recording the sound of pigs being slaughtered horrible horrible screams and this was one of the big wake-up calls for him about what he was involved with they were taking the, the the sound of agony and mixing it and doing what audio engineers do to make it for the demon sounds and just think about what that does to your psyche even if you just think oh it's it's a not real demon thing the sounds are coming from a real creature in torment many creatures in torment so that's some pretty heavy stuff
0: it's being delivered through demons. So there's your first thing, but what what does the scream of a slaughtered dying pig do to the subconscious of a young person? So people could listen to this episode and think, oh, that crow's a fuddy-duddy, you know, this is what we do now. No, I'm sorry, I'm not wrong here. This is the type of thing that goes on, and here at the end of the hour, we're just starting to touch on some of the completely barbaric, underhanded things that have been done. These games are wholly put together in the same way movies and TVs are, except they're on steroids, because you interact with them. In the same way you move through your world and you imagine all the places you can go in your town where you spatially have recognition of where you are within that environment, in a game... The spatial recognition you're employing is about a thing that does not exist at all anywhere in this world. And yet in your mind, you have created this spatial world where all these places in the game you can go to kill people mostly because that's what most games are about. You can shoot them. You can blow them up. You can burn them. You can stab them with a stake. You can cut off their head with a chainsaw. You can play Grand Theft Auto and go out and kill some street walkers and some police while you're at it. And so the young people probably look at that as fuddy-duddy, but when you start to peer behind the scenes and you understand things like an audio track from a slaughterhouse were implemented, and this is what these young people are getting through their headsets, you better realize what's going on here. But anyhow, that does bring us to the close of the first hour, Jason. Is there anything you want to add before I wrap up 107 and we get ready for hour two?
1: Hour two, we're going to finish up with the video game's history and then talk about The real military application of everything and how they were involved, I'm going to go back and point out in the history just what they were doing all along that you just didn't even know about.
0: It's astounding, and you know, the military is never far from any of this, and we've already shown that from the outset of the internet and gaming, the military was there both times. But I forgot to mention in the intro, uh, Crow 777's first hour, which is free, is now available on iTunes. Uh, We finally got approved for that. But anyhow, that does bring episode 107, first hour, to a close. At the posting of this episode on Crow 777radio.com, there will be 107 free hours of content. You don't need to log in. You can go there and listen to whatever you want. Want. Alternatively, if you want to support free speech, you can join for the price of a cup of coffee and get the full two hours, two hours plus. Plus, Jason and I will soon probably be expanding what we offer uh, membership uh, because of the pressures that are being put on us by the European Union that now basically control the internet. Anyhow, I hope to see you all over at Crow777radio.com. Cheers.